uh, some Bibles to the back uh, at the coffee bar. Feel free to get up and get one, and those are free. If you do not have one, you're welcome to take it home with you. We're in the middle of a series uh, where we are going through considering what the Scriptures tell us about God's uh, major character traits. We're not covering them all, but the ones that Scripture seems to emphasize the most. When you think about God, I wonder what's the very first thing that comes to mind, the immediate image that you get. In 2014, in the United States, in Tempe, Arizona, I would imagine if we went around the room that the image that most of us get is that we think of love, that God is God of love. That's certainly true. And next week, Brian Jerry will be sharing with us some of what the scriptures have to say about that. But love, friends, is probably not the very first thing that God would want to come to your mind. It's probably not the most dominant image of himself that is presented in scripture. Let me give you two reasons why it's probably not the very first thing that he would want us to think of. Uh, First of all, it's not... The idea we have of God's love isn't actually what the Bible would teach us about love at all. We have a very fuzzy, ooey-gooey, mushy view of love that isn't the full picture of the love we have in the Scriptures. So it's probably not the first thing we would want us to think of because we're not even thinking of the real thing. And second, the Scriptures do demonstrate and speak about God's love, but If you add all of those instances up and you compile those next to another character trait of God that's mentioned even more, you'd find they don't at all equal one another in terms of the volume of time the Bible speaks of them. Let me say that a different way. Of all the things God would want you to know about Him, what's the one He would most want you to know? I found that the answer to that question isn't what I would have said prior to working on this message. Without a doubt, I can tell you that the message God would most often tell us is that God is holy. That that is the thing He wants us to know the most about Him. Not that love isn't true, not that truthfulness isn't true, not that faithfulness isn't true, but that holiness is the one He wants us to get the most. Now, what would lead me to that conclusion? Well, when people met with God in the Bible, when God chose to make his presence known, the very first thing, the most often that comes up, is his holiness. That's what happened when Moses and Isaiah and Joshua and Peter and John, just to name a few, when they had encounters with the living God, they didn't fall to the ground saying, isn't God loving they fell to the ground saying, aren't I sinful? And isn't God holy? The thing that was most unlike them when compared to God was His holiness. And throughout the story of the Christian church through history, every time there's been a great movement of God, which has most often begun with college students, interestingly, there is always this recognition of the holiness of God and the brokenness of people. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit in Scripture are all called holy, and the name given to the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, not the love Spirit. 
Only holiness is repeated three times in succession as a descriptor for God. We just sung it together. Scripture never says that God is love, 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 or just, 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 or powerful, 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 or even good, good, good. It only says God is holy, holy, holy. So how I've studied the Bible for 20 years and haven't really noticed how much holiness is emphasized, I'm not sure. But it's everywhere. Here's just a few passages before we get to Isaiah 6. Psalm 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. 1 Samuel 2.2 There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 5.4 You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Revelation 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Why? For you alone are holy. All nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, I'm not sure about you, but these kinds of verses raise all sorts of questions for me. Here's just a few of them. What exactly does it mean that God's holy? I mean, that's not a word we use very often unless it's preceded by a cuss word. But what is holiness? What is that? And why does it matter so much? What's the big deal? Why does God tell us this over and over and over? What does God's holiness have to do with our daily lives? And isn't this talk about holiness a bit old-fashioned? Today we're going to try to tackle a few of those questions by looking at arguably the most famous passage in all of the Bible on God's holiness, Isaiah 6. As we do this, I think you'll find these four things to be true. God's holiness overwhelms us. When people really see that God's holy, they find it overwhelming. Second, God's holiness convicts. When we come to understand that God is a holy God, then we see that we're not a holy people. Third, we'll find that God's holiness imparts, maybe the most shocking of all of the truths we'll look at, that God, a holy God, will give some of His holiness. And then finally, that God's holiness sins. We see these four things in Isaiah 6. And in most passages that talk about the holiness of God, all four of these traits are present. That it overwhelms, that it convicts, that it imparts, and then that it sins. So let's look at it together. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is the prophet Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. If you are new uh, to church, maybe this is your first time, this is a weird scene, isn't it? I've seen a lot of things. I haven't seen anything like that. And if you've been in church a long time, allow yourself to feel this is weird. This is a strange passage, but that doesn't make it not true. Simply because we haven't had the experience doesn't mean it's not an experience that could be had. And perhaps you have had an encounter with God that maybe didn't take on these traits, but you walked away knowing God's holy, and I'm not. I hope today that the Lord would give us an experience together, a real encounter with the living God. Because the same God that Isaiah saw is the same God that is present as we read this text together. We see first here that God's holiness overwhelms. Who's the most famous person you've ever met or just seen in a distance? Not on the TV, in real life. Most famous person you've ever seen. Not rhetorical, I would really like to know. Phil Jackson, really? That's impressive. Richard Nixon. Bob Marley? Oh, Dan Marley, I was going to say. Hmm. What? Stan Lee. Anybody else? He's a little short guy. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Matt, Matt, Williams. Matt Williams. You guys have met a lot of people, or at least seen a lot of people. What? Met a large lemon. I thought you said I ate a large lemon. <laughs> uh, Jill and I wore... Um, Before we lived in Arizona, uh, my family several times took um, houseboat trips to Lake Powell. And the closest place to fly to is Las Vegas. And so we were actually in Vegas the night that uh, Mike Tyson bit off the top chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear. And so we were in the casino where the fight took place, trying to catch a glimpse of somebody. And all of a sudden, all these people were just running out and it was after you bit the hunk of the ear off and pretty soon uh, this little short guy comes walking through with this whole entourage it turns out it was uh, Sylvester Stallone and now this will date me a little bit but I grew up on Rambo and Rocky 
And these were the movies I watched over and over and over and over. Pray for me. And uh, so to see Rocky in the flesh was pretty amazing. And he's about this tall. He's, he's as tall here as he is uh, here. Pretty cool to see a famous person like that in person. Nobody said President Obama or President George Bush or President Bill Clinton or the other George Bush or Ronald Reagan or James Carter or Gerald Ford or Lyndon Johnson. Somebody did say Nixon. Imagine meeting somebody... Imagine meeting somebody who had been the ruler over all of those presidents, over that entire stretch of time. That's who King Uzziah was. He ruled for 52 years. We toss out presidential leaders like old dirty shirts. But this guy ruled for 52 years. That's Isaiah. Isaiah knew that guy, and he knew him well. Uzziah overall was a good king. He was a really good king for most of his life. But towards the end, and he serves as a great reminder for us, towards the end he made some really bad decisions. He wandered away from the Lord. And it cost him and the nation of Israel dearly. And in this passage, we find him dead. Before we just go on, let me encourage those of you among us that are, that are older. We who are younger need to see faithfulness to the end because very few do it. Very few the whole rest of life walk with the Lord. It, it seems like sometimes people enter a, a second adolescence when the kids are gone and begin making decisions that don't honor God. I am blessed by those of you who in the room are, are older than me and you're helping to teach me what it's like to follow God when the body begins to break down and you begin to watch people die and you lose friends. This king didn't stay faithful and we as a body have the opportunity to help each other stay faithful. So don't turn on God when it begins to get hard. Isaiah 6 describes a moment of crisis for Isaiah. Imagine the national fear that we would feel if we had a king for 52 years. And all of a sudden that king is dead. He's gone. That's Isaiah chapter 6. Now, King Uzziah picked a really horrible time to kick the bucket. The, the history of what was happening around the world is... Uh, readily available to us. There was an Assyrian king at the same time named Tiglath Pileser III. Turn to your neighbor and say Tiglath Pileser III. Isn't that fun? So Tiglath Pileser III was not a guy you would want to have at Thanksgiving dinner. He was a cruel, vicious man. He was making his very first military campaign around the same time conquering neighborhood countries in exactly the same time that King Uzziah died. So if you were an Israeli 
you were afraid. There was great concern among the Jews because not only did the name sound mean, the man was mean. Israel, over time, was destroyed. The capital city of Samaria was taken. Many cities in Judah were destroyed. All of this was around where Isaiah lived. And for the next century, Isaiah would become the world superpower. So you're Isaiah, you knew the king, and the king's gone, and here comes Tiglath-Pileser III. Isaiah felt overwhelmed. The most important person he knew died. And so what did he do? Well, in the language that we would use today, he went to church. He went to the temple because he needed to hear from God. Has there been a time in your life when you were at a real moment of crisis where the thing or the person or the resources that you trusted in were now gone? What do you turn to when that happens? You only have one hope. That hope is God. And Isaiah knew that. And God revealed himself in a powerful way. Look at how the passage started again. In the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Do you catch what he's saying? He's saying, the king, the king I put my trust in, the king who led and ruled for 52 years, he died, but God's alive. That king died, but this one reigns forever. That king I trusted in, but this one has more power. He's sitting on the throne of heaven. And not only is God alive, he's magnificent. One of the weird things in the passage is these strange creatures that are flying around. They don't show up often. They're not in the Bible much. But here they're described in detail. There's some type of angel that's so magnificent we can hardly describe them, let alone comprehend them. They have six wings. And the imagery is that they're humble, but they have supernatural power. They're so big and so strong and so mighty that when they speak, the temple he was in shook. Beats by Dr. Dre beating power. But they're not there for themselves. These beings who are more magnificent than anything you or I have ever seen, they're not there to worship themselves. What are they saying for all eternity? Holy, 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 holy. So magnificent is God that these beings of indescribable brilliance are but candles compared to the midday sun of God. And what is it about these beings that's so wonderful? It's that they knew that God is that way. They're not wrapped up in themselves like we are. And so they worshiped Him. They worshiped Him because of His holiness. God is entirely 
beautifully separate from evil. He is absolutely pure. He's completely morally perfect. That's what they were captivated by. That's what they stood in amazement over. Imagine never taking something good like work or kids or hobbies or beauty or friends or home or spouse. Imagine never taking one of those good things and turning it into an ultimate thing. Imagine always having those good things in their rightful place. What would that be like? That would be holy. That's what God does. Imagine looking at someone or something beautiful and simply appreciating it, not lusting after it. What would that be like? That's holy. That's what God is like. Imagine for all eternity never lying or hoarding or lashing out in anger or having a selfish thought or overspending your checking account or withdrawing in self-protection when you get hurt. Imagine never using somebody for how they'd make you feel about yourself. Imagine never taking a selfie to get attention. Friends, we don't make it a day without moral failure. And God has existed forever in perfection. He's holy. That's what holiness means. And that's simply overwhelming, is it not? If it's not, then you're blinded to your own sin. And I pray that God would reveal to you today just how much you need Him. God, God, He's holy, which means He's absolutely morally perfect, completely separate from anything evil forever. Now when... Isaiah saw that. What did he say about himself? He said, woe is me. He didn't say, wow, look at that. He didn't say, finally I get to see God and He's so loving. He didn't say, God, would you do this and this and this and this and this for me? He didn't say, God, why haven't you answered my prayers? He didn't say, God, look at all this great stuff I've done for you. He didn't even say, God, why did you let the king die? He said, what was me? Why? Why is that what happens repeatedly in the Bible when people meet God? It's because we are so not holy that when you meet the presence of a God who forever and ever and ever is perfect, it's crushing. That image of God, at least in our part of the world, is almost completely forgotten. And maybe that is why we so infrequently see God at work. My dear friends, when was the last time you were wrecked by your sinfulness? Now this happened in the past. Let's fast forward just for a moment to a time this will take place in the future. Revelation 15 says, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So this is a scene that will take place in the future. 
as God's people gather together to worship Him. If you're saved, here's what you're going to sing to God. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Why? Why is God worthy of fear and glory? Because you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. In our effort to make God more palpable, more palatable, more buddy-buddy, someone we can add on the side of our life as a bellboy when needed, have we lost the fact that God is scary, that He's holy, that He's devastating? That was gross. Friends, is your consuming desire for more of never having enough because you fear a lack of comfort more than you fear God? Could it be that your struggle with eating food for comfort to the point that it's harming your body is because you fear loneliness more than you fear God? Could it be that your angry demeanor, your uptightness, your harsh tone, your judgmental attitude is because you fear failure more than you fear God? If you're here as a parent of a young kid, could it be the anxiety that you feel as a parent is there primarily not because of legitimate concern for your kids, but because you fear being looked at as a lousy parent more than you fear God? Could it be that your struggle with pornography and masturbation is rooted in a fear of losing control more than you've lost or existed in the fear of God? Friends, the only way to conquer the fear that drives us every day is with a greater fear. That is the only way. Only an awe of God can trump your awe of everything else. A book the staff just read, there's a phrase in it that says, every day we exist in an all-out awe war. And the only way to trump fear is with a greater fear. That's what Isaiah found. Isaiah was afraid. That's why he went to church. He was afraid because the king died. And how did God address his fear? With more fear, but with fear properly placed, with a reverence for God. God's holiness and justice and goodness demands that he punish sin. And that's what Isaiah felt when he entered in God's presence. Woe is me. Now, if the story stopped here, none of us would be here. If the only thing that God's holiness did is overwhelm us and convict us, we would all be dead. But there's something that God's holiness does that's amazing, and that's that God imparts His holiness to those that submit themselves to Him. What the holiness of God requires is that those in relationship with God be holy too. Because holiness is intrinsic to God's nature, there's no way around that. 
So we're in big trouble if it weren't for this fact. The gospel is the message that God's holiness can be imparted, can be shared, can be freely given to people who don't deserve it. And that is the greatest news there could possibly be. Because all of us are unholy. In Isaiah, this is symbolized with burning coal. So Isaiah says, woe is me. And in an expression of the holiness of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, Isaiah's lips are touched with a burning coal, signifying the holiness that God possesses being given over to Isaiah, who didn't possess it. So God takes his holiness and says, Here, Isaiah, you cried out to me, so I name you as mine. You are holy now by association with me. I give you my holiness. I impart my purity to you. Isn't that cool? The thing he least deserved, he got the most. Now, in the New Testament, this becomes much clearer how this happens. 2 Corinthians, 5, chapter 20, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, he, this is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth, lived a perfect life, never sinned, offered himself as a substitute by dying on a wooden cross. So Christian, all of your sin was placed upon Jesus. And God accepted that death in your place so that you could have the holiness of God. Now, I'm not here talking about the way that you live. Because if that's what it took to become saved, no one would ever be able to become saved. I was well aware as we stood today and sung how unholy, even as we were singing, some of my thoughts were. What about you? If maintaining holiness is what was required to be known by God, no one would be known by God. So when the scripture says he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, it's talking about a position that God regards us as being in. It's saying God places us in a position of being regarded as holy. He places us in a position of being made righteous before him. So that forever, if you've accepted Christ, then God, when he looks at you, he sees the perfect spotless, righteous Son of God. Even though for the rest of your days you're going to still struggle with sin. There's a mystery to that, but it's true. And it's freeing and it's wonderful. And the more you get that, the more holy you begin to live in everyday life. The two work together. But God not only removed evil from you, He gave you that right standing. Jesus is now your life. The Son's position of honor is now yours. And that leads us to the last thing that holiness does, and I've got to do this one quickly. God's holiness sins. Perhaps the most shocking thing in this whole passage is that Isaiah says, I'm ruined, I'm a wreck, woe is me. And then... He turns around and says, here am I, I'll go, 
How does that happen? How does a person go from, I'm a worthless scum, to, I'll do whatever you want? The only way that happens is by someone receiving the gift of God's forgiveness and the gift of His holiness. And then how can you not say, here am I, send me? Because if you get who God is and that He gives some of Himself to us, then life is then poured out for Him. Look at verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. That change makes no sense apart from this fact. The holiness of God really does move people from horrifying conviction to utter delight in God's forgiveness. If you have one but not the other, then you have not yet experienced the forgiveness of God. If you're only afraid of God and you don't recognize that He's given you right standing with Him and you tremble in fear, then what you have is not a correct view of God. You've got a God who thinks you must earn a right standing before Him. But if all you've got is a sense of, well, I'm forgiven and not... God can crush me with his thumb, then I'm not sure you have it either. Because holiness isn't something you can earn. It's a gift that you've been given. You see, these things work together. Holiness from God will propel life holy for God. So holiness in the full sense of the word from Genesis to Revelation tells us that. That God can give us holiness, right standing before Him. And that when that happens, then we begin to live life holy for Him. The more we see God as a holy God, the more we get the fact that there's people who need Him and that they don't yet see Him as He is and that we're willing to then go and share. So a couple questions as we wrap up our time. Brothers and sisters, those of you in the room who are not here today because you're examining, is God true? Do I believe the scriptures? You're already convinced. Is your life torn in many different directions? Do you have a divided heart? Are you not wholly devoted to God? If so, then the scriptures would say that you've lost sight of God's holiness. You need another encounter with God where you're reminded, woe is me. So that then you can arrive at the here am I, send me. It's not that you'd stay in this pitiful, I'm a wretched person, but that you'd move from conviction into being sent by God. And then what you'll find as you do that is you wind right back up at, I need his forgiveness yet again, over and over and over and over. It's God's kindness that leads us to that. That's the rest of your life, the path you will take. God, I'll go. As you go, you find, ooh, I went because I wanted to be thought of well. Ooh, God, forgive me. But now I want to go, so God, send me. Ooh, I'm not looking at that person with pure eyes. God, forgive me. God, I, that's the course of life. It's a gift of God. 
If you're here today and now you understand, I've never responded to that God. That's the only God there is. And yes, He's loving, but first, the Scriptures would tell us, He's holy. And His holiness is nothing to play with. Have you seen that today? If so, then the opportunity you're given is to do what Isaiah did. It's to say, woe is me. God, I have lived an unholy life. Yeah, there's worse people out there, but I had no idea in light of you just how bad I am. The good news is that all God wants from you is that you would turn from that sin and turn to Him. And you'll be given the gift of salvation. In the picture of Isaiah, God will come to you with burning coals and purify you. One of the greatest American preachers that America's ever seen said this, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It's possible out of selfish motives to be attracted to God's mercy because we have guilt or His love because He's going to do good things for us or His power because God can handle anything we face. In other words, it's possible for us to have a very, very self-centered heart and to come to God for His love or for some other attribute. But this preacher went on to say this, only if God's really begun to change your life are you attracted to His holiness. Only if you really get who God is and how He is do you find His holiness beautiful. God's holiness is the most intimidating of all His attributes. It's the most demanding of all His attributes. But it's also the one that can change your life the most if you begin to come to grips with it. Jonathan Edwards said that in the 1700s. It's still true today. God's holiness convicts, it imparts, and it sins. So I want to urge you, in whatever way you need to, respond to God. And I want to encourage those of you in the room who are followers of Christ to respond in in a particular way. Scripture makes it clear that if we're going to be right with a holy God then there's a tremendous price. And that price was paid by Jesus. God is well aware of what we might call our gospel amnesia, how quickly we forget what God's done for us and how much we need Him, how quickly we turn back to ourselves. And so He's given us a very tangible way to remember what He's done for us. And just like Isaiah 6 is weird, this is weird. But it's a physical reminder of what the price of sin is. Jesus, when he was here, he took bread and he broke it and he said to his followers, this is a symbol of my broken body. And he took a cup and he said, this is a symbol of my shed blood. And so ever since that moment, where the body of Christ 
rightly understands who he is and what he's done for us, they gather together and they remember Jesus' body was broken because I'm a sinner. And Jesus' blood was shed, not because it needed to be. Jesus was holy, but because I'm not. And so in just a moment, I would invite you to stand and to come with a fellow brother and sister in Christ to take the broken body and the shed blood, to pray together, to confess your sins to one another, and to rejoice that God has not killed you, that God has been merciful to you, that God loves you, that God has taken his holiness and says, I will regard you as holy. Take those elements and let it be a reminder to you of your need for God. Would you stand with me and let's pray. And then I'd invite you to go to one of the stations here at the front. There's also two at the back. And as you go, we're going to sing a song we sung earlier with just a little modification. We said, I need you, God, I need you. In the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're saying, we need you. This is a corporate act for the people of God to remember what he's done for us together. So as you take it, would you sing?